0: Hello, I'm Lori Murphy, Assistant Division Director for Executive Education at the Federal Judicial Center. Welcome to our podcast focused on executive leadership in the judiciary. Today's episode is about demonstrating courage in times of crisis. Every executive at one time or another will likely face a crisis in a work situation. It's how you respond in that moment of crisis that can define you as a leader. Our host for today's episode is my colleague, Michael Siegel. Senior Education Specialist at the FJC. Michael, take it away.
1: Thanks, Laurie. Today we're going to talk with Harvard Business Professor Nancy Kane, author of the book Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Times of Crisis. I'm excited to introduce Nancy, who holds the position of James E. Robeson Chair of Business Administration at Harvard. Nancy is a featured contributor to Boston's WGBH and NPR radio station. She speaks frequently at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, and the Aspen Institute Ideas Festival. Her articles have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Harvard Business Review. Nancy, thanks so much for joining us.
2: It's a real pleasure, Michael. Thanks for having me.
1: Sure. Can you tell us what inspired you to write the book, Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Times of Crisis?
2: Well, two major forces acted upon me in in motivating me or inspiring me to write the book. The first was just a series of historical ruminations on the turbulence that seemed to be engulfing our global village. Really, from the turn of the 20th into the 21st century, there I was, a young historian at Harvard Business School, watching all this disruption, technological, political, you know, climactic, uh, in terms of our environmental, all over the place, so there was turbulence. And I was curious about how institutions, and particularly leaders of institutions, respond to that turbulence. So that was the first, if you will, analytical wind whipping around me. But the second, more powerful gusts that were coming at me in writing this book were a series of personal crises I my husband walked out on me, my father died very suddenly, I developed cancer, I developed cancer again. And in the midst of that, pretty early on in those dominoes falling and they fell fast and furiously, I picked up a book of Lincoln's writings. I didn't know much about Lincoln, I hadn't studied American history as a PhD student, and I was so struck by what he was dealing with at the center of the per, of a perfect storm as president during the Civil War and I literally can remember saying to myself in 2003, Nancy, you think you have problems? (laughs) Mr. Lincoln had much bigger ones. And so I began um, a quest to try and understand the emotional experience of leaders in great turbulence and how that affects their impact. But I was also learning lessons for myself as well as for, if you will, my historical file folders or body of knowledge.
1: Well... Sounds like your head and your heart were activated at the same time.
2: That's that, you know you're the first person that said that to me, and that is spot on, Michael. Oh, spot thank on. you,
1: thank you, Nancy. You cover five very different leaders. Your comment about gusts brings to mind Ernest Shackleton, a 19th century British naval officer turned explorer. He tried to lead an expedition to the South Pole. Abraham Lincoln, who you mentioned, a 19th century U.S. president who fought to preserve the Union. During the Civil War, Lincoln's contemporary Frederick Douglass, who wanted to free African Americans held in slavery, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a 20th-century German theologian who struggled to resist Nazi Germany, and finally Rachel Carson, a 20th-century American scientist and writer who spoke out for the critical importance of environmental sustainability. What unites these five very different leaders? What do they have in common?
2: Well, that's that's the animating question of the book, and so I, I don't want to give kind of all the all the gold away here, but some three, at least three major meta meta things unite these people. The first is, and most obviously, is that each of these people found themselves in a in an unexpected and an enormous um, crisis, a crisis that tested their soul, that tested their strength in all dimensions, that tested their very ideas about what they were doing on this planet. So it was existential as well as, as, well as spiritual and intellectual and emotional. And, so, and then the second theme is absolutely critical. The second common thread is absolutely critical to understanding the book, which is called Forged in Crisis, and that was that each of these people made a choice. They didn't have a choice about the crisis coming. It took them completely unawares in each instance, but they made a choice, each of them, to to make something of the crisis to get somehow stronger or better to to navigate through it without knowing exactly how they were going to do it but to play to their stronger side as they did so they were they were each resolved to put it negatively not to be a victim and to emerge somehow better than than when they than when they you know they originally started in the storm and that turned out to be absolutely critical to the kind of um, boulders, huge boulders of goodness that they each move in their respective spheres. And the third thing that's really important, and I think the reason this book seems to speak to all kinds of people, is that each of these people cultivated their own emotional awareness as a very very conscious kind of enterprise and believed that by doing that, You know, Lincoln and Shackleton and Douglas are all working way before that term even exists in common parlance. They did it because they knew somehow, instinctively, that that was part of their, if you will, tool belt for getting through, getting better, and accomplishing something. And so those three things forged in crisis, the power of of a crisis to actually, from the inside out, make each of us better, and stronger, and more luminous, and more resilient, and ultimately, here's the real kicker, be able to exercise very worthy, bigger impact on a world that could not be more thirsty for good leaders.
1: Wow, absolutely. That's a great message. On the other hand, the five leaders were not devoid of personal ambition, whether it was to sell books, attain high office, or reach the (laughs) South Pole. Um, But as they matured and as the environment around them changed, they pivoted, it seems to me, from personal ambition to something much grander, as you talked about earlier, to the achievement of a goal for society or humanity. What was the catalyst for the transformation among some of them?
2: That's a great question. You know, I say in the and no one's asked it of me before, I, I say in the, in the conclusion that they each independently make the transition from, if you will, the narcissistic fuel of I, right, mm-hmm. me, me, I, me, to thou, you, the larger whole and the good of the larger whole. And I think that the reason they each make this trans- transformation or make the pivot, I like the word pivot, Michael, make the pivot is because... They're each, in a sense, called to dig so deep into themselves, uh, to, just to navigate the high winds in huge ways, that, that they come out thinking, but moment by moment, there has got to be something right, bigger than just myself, something more meaningful, something heftier, something more attuned with a larger goodness. Than just my wish to sell books or my wish to be famous, or in Lincoln's case, my wish to hold political office, and I think it's the very aspect of the crisis and being taken hmm. so unawares and also in, in a sense you know falling to their knees and getting up and saying, "This has got to be bigger than just my resume yeah. and in that realization comes two really important things, and this is I hope very relevant to to your to your colleagues and, and, and to the folks that are doing such important service in the judiciary. And two important things. One, when one discovers, right, the relationship between one's gifts, one's energy, and the larger purpose, first, there's a great sense of not only satisfaction, but inner power in that, right, the investment, the commitment of one, the investment in the commitment of oneself to a big worthy purpose. So to discover actually more power and more resilience in that, if you will, transformation or pivot. And the second thing they discover is they discover the ability to, to to nurture other people, to bring other people along in that quest, to care for others, and then to bring those people along. And that, of course, then becomes another gas tank for them. Mm. You know, I say early in the book, I, I use this quotation, and I think it's just, spot on from a American writer called David Foster Wallace that courageous leaders, real leaders, he writes, are individuals who help us overcome the limitations of our own weaknesses and laziness and selfishness and fears and get us to do harder, better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. And each of these people in embracing that purpose becomes that kind of leader and, 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 and others rise within themselves because of that leadership. So so the, the pivot turns out to be a pivot of great and worthy power.
1: What a great concept and what a great quote. And it reminds me of the Colin Powell statement that motivation is a force multiplier.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And and, and when you're in that place, when you're in that in the flow with others, trying to do something really hard, but that you know is about goodness, right? You, you, know, you, you see that multiplier, you mm-hmm. feel. it's yep. part of the energy, it's part of the connection with other people, it's part of what drives you.
1: Exactly. Several of the leaders, perhaps most notably Shackleton, Lincoln, and Douglas, reflected a change in their thinking. They modified their purpose or vision due to changing circumstances. What can we learn from this about staying loyal to a purpose but also be willing to be flexible?
2: That's, it's a, that's a great pull-out, Michael, especially with regard to Douglas. Um, it's it, it, that's, a, yeah, that's a careful read that, that you've done, and I appreciate um, it. I think the large lesson here about this combination of, in one sense, stubbornness. I mean, these people, all of them, to a one, you know, exemplify something Estee Lauder, the cosmetics entrepreneur, once said, that no is just another word for how and when. When you're on a worthy endeavor, right? Mm. No is just another word for how and when. Mm. They don't really take no for an answer. They keep on keeping on. At the, so, so there's a stubbornness to the mm-hmm. the cueing, yep. right? They do to the purpose. The adherence to the purpose. In you know, in Douglas' cases, Douglas' case, it's free slavery, but how he's going to do that changes pretty significantly, right? In the yep. between, say, the late 1840s and the mid 1850s, and then again, when he sees war is imminent for Lincoln. It's it, 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 it's it's a much more significant shift from I'm going to lead the nation through the war and save the Union to I'm going to save the Union I'm going to transform it
3: mm-hmm. and then
2: Shacklin, of course pivots ma- shifts massively when he has to save his men the the the, the, the real combination I think is the this, this stubbornness to a worthy mission right? they, and they they all hew to this Carson with with Silent Spring her her you know world rocking book and then Dietrich Bonhoeffer with resisting not the evil. But what, what is so important about this is they marry that to this suppleness that you're talking about in the question about how I'm going to do that and what I'm willing to do in terms of adaptation to accomplish that the mission. And if the mission can get worthier, in the case of Lincoln or Shackleton, if the mission can get bigger and worthier, well, then I will walk into that space and I will actually – adjust myself, work on myself so that I'm capable within myself in terms of transformation and change to accomplishing something bigger and more decent. So it's a combination of find the purpose and move into it. And then at the same time, like you're driving a six-shift car, you, know, you, keep a, you keep a light hand on the, on the gear shift and, 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 a, and a light hand or a deft hand, foot on the clutch. Mm. So it's that combination I think that's so important
1: the leaders in your book reflected an inside-out approach to leadership, meaning they drew their inspiration and their power, as you were just uh, talking about, from deep inside themselves, and then they worked to persuade others to join them. What is the significance of an inside-out approach to leadership success?
2: A couple of things. First, um, it suggests that that really courageous leaders – Get right with themselves and keep getting right with themselves as a way to hold the responsibility of accomplishing the mission through thick and thin. So I think the first, the first piece of significance, if you will, or the first, the first cut at the significance aspect, is it, 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 by 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 from the inside out. You are doing two really important things. You are honing your muscles of resilience. Hmm. And you are honing your muscles of moral courage. Each of these people actually grows more and more, grows into moral seriousness the further they march along on their mission because, because they're leading from the inside out, because they're working from this transformation in themselves and this clear-eyed honesty about who they are and what their purpose is. So first, more resilience, an increase in moral seriousness, which I think is incredibly important. Second, equally important because these people are leading from the inside out, they're cultivating empathy. right mm-hmm. They're cultivating a, 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 an ability to understand by virtue of their own emotional awareness what makes other people tick. So they develop higher and higher levels if you will, of interpersonal and group, if you will, you know um, communication, and ability to motivate, inspire, and just keep the troops moving and marching when things are very difficult. Shackleton's men, 201 one after the after they got home, um, said, and this is in BBC radio interviews way into the late twenties and thirties, said what kept us alive was the boss's belief that we could do this. Mm-hmm. So there you see a perfect example of Shackleton's emotional, you know, intelligence affecting other people's willingness to follow them and do harder, better things than they could do on their own. And I think the third thing, and this is maybe even more pertinent today than it is in these five stories, the so latest one of which ends in when Carson dies in 1964, is when, when turbulence is accelerating, as it is so clearly around the world, and we have social media you know, spreading, right, the, the, the emotional aspects of that turbulence, often on the more negative side so quickly and so broadly, Leaders simply have have to cultivate and and incite others to cultivate a kind of emotional stability and forbearance and, if you will, steady on that is so critical. And to do that, you can't do that by downloading an app if you're a leader or by telling people to download an app. You've got to have it within you and then use it to, to help other people stay calm, to have others act as a ballast. And so you can get things done and keep institutions functioning at at their best level as the volatility and uncertainty accelerate.
1: Powerful ideas. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk with Professor Nancy Kane about leadership in times of crisis.
4: Have you heard about the FJC's National Conference for Court Unit Executives? Join us October the 16th through the 18th in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where court unit executives from across the country will explore inspirational ideas from inside and outside the courts. At the conference, you will have ample opportunities to connect with court unit and circuit executives throughout the judiciary. Develop solutions to common challenges. Learn strategic insights from leading thinkers, innovators, and business leaders. Advance your own leadership development. Gain practical tips on being a resilient leader. Transform your perspectives on leadership theory and application by visiting local private and public organizations. And reignite your passion for leading the best judiciary in the world. Registration for the National Conference for Court Unit Executives will open in June, so stay tuned for that announcement. You can also check the Education tab on fjc.dcn and click or tap on executive education to learn more. We're excited about the experience we're designing just for you, and we look forward to seeing you in Pittsburgh this fall.
1: Welcome back. I'm talking with Professor Nancy Kane, author of Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Times of Crisis. Nancy, let's talk about how all the leaders in your book dealt with crisis. And yet, none of them succumbed to that crisis, as you indicated. They were not defeated by it. You indicate that all five leaders made an emotional pact with themselves, that they refused to spend lots of time playing with worst-case scenarios. Were they simply blind optimists? What propelled each of them to stay the course? A
2: combination of factors, all, again, stemming from a uh, um- Emotional agency, emotional awareness, and their choices over over their emotions, and a great and therefore a great amount of emotional discipline, which all of us have, whether we cultivate it or not is a different question. So, the they the decision not to spend an enormous amount of time replaying worst case scenarios was a decision that each of them came to. They were not blind optimists. They were not none of them Pollyannas. They said this could happen. Right, Bonhoeffer, I could said I could be executed by the Nazis, and he goes down that path for a while when he's first imprisoned in 1943, and he quickly realizes I'm gonna I'm gonna lose myself. I'll be so anxious. I'll be so so despairing. This is there there is nothing for me at the end of this dead end and very very dark street. Mm-hmm. And so he pulls back and says, I know that that possibility exists. I'm going. I'm going to close the door on spending a lot of time in that room of my mind and my feelings. So that piece, they each do. They each choose to turn their attention away, acknowledging that the, the worst-case scenario exists, trying to avoid it, but not endlessly replaying the loop of that possibility. So I think that's a very important skill. That in, again, in our, our moment of a salacious and dark media and, and all kinds of base stuff running around the internet we could all do well to experiment with and hone. The second piece is perhaps even more important in terms of keeping them on course. Each of them in, in Lincoln's case many times, in Carson's case many times, in Shackleton's case many times, in Douglas's case, many times, each of them get right up to the edge of what I call the cliff of despair and giving up. And and they have a choice, so I just do a diver over the edge, and, and, and because I can't do this, because this is too hard, because this latest obstacle is hardly to be, it's in my path, it's hardly to be believed. They each come to that point. All of us know that point in our lives, whatever the context, and each of them get right up to the edge, their toes, you know, hooked over the, the rocks, peering down, and then each of them. In those moments, Lincoln's is, in Lincoln's case, it is the most clear in the cha- that chapter about his experience. Each of them realizes that if they give up, the whole enchilada is finished. The whole game is over. They, in other words, they own in the moment when it really counts, they own the responsibility of their own leadership. And then, interestingly, and again, this doesn't make for great Hollywood scriptwriting because it's not dramatic, they take a tiny step away from the edge and then another tiny step away, and then another tiny step away. And by the time 2 a.m. has become 6 a.m., because often these kind of moments come in the wee hours, by the time it's 6 a.m., they're up off their knees, and they're ready to take the first step into the day. And what is so, I think, very important for people to understand and and appreciate here for all of us in these boundary situations is the most important thing we can do is that tiny step back Mm -hmm. from the edge of the cliff.
1: Absolutely. But once you
2: take that first tiny little step, the next step backwards is easier, and by the fifth step, you're back in the game again. So that turns out to be really, really important. Muscling, if you will, muscling their their courage and their and, and their and their resilience, their persistence in that moment. And I think the last thing, and this is really perhaps relevant for the people that you serve, that you folks work with, and that you are, and that is that each of these people understood that they were on an important mission. And so the mission at certain moments, the very act of what they were trying to accomplish, and its decency and its its possibility to move, as I say, the boulder of goodness forward, each, that very mission served, again, as a source of a of, of reason to go on. Lincoln, you know, Lincoln in, in, in the depth of the end of, 19, of 1863, when the war was going so badly for the North, Carson dealing with all the ramifications of a harsh treatment and uh, uh, for an aggressive cancer and trying to finish this book that she knows is world-changing. Each of them are, 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 find some comfort and some resilience and persistence in the mission itself.
1: Well, yeah, and that's so motivating and so inspirational. The emotional discipline you talked about uh, allowed them to, in effect, slow down or pause during a crisis so that they would not react emotionally. At At a point when tensions were high, events were moving probably more quickly than they wanted them to. These leaders had the ability to stop, assess the situation, as you said, take a small step in order to marshal the proper resources to tame the crisis this seems remarkable how can leaders today learn to do this
2: um, a couple of things so I, I do a lot of um, leadership coaching uh, for mostly for executives but for some uh, some really magnificent leaders in in, in government and in, in other in nonprofits and we, we talk a lot about this that the importance of slowing down is actually becoming greater as the world accelerates and move fast and break things that sounds nifty but that's just wrong it's just it's just blatantly wrong when the stakes are high nothing that's important and worthy and worth fighting for is ever made better especially if a leader or the people around him or her are hot under the collar emotionally is ever made better in the midst of in the midst of great speed we're all so conditioned partly by our gadgets to move so quickly. And, and we're losing sight of the idea that waiting, even just an hour, you know, 12 hours, can make a major, major difference, not only in the leader, him or herself, and their thinking about it, and their ability to consider the larger picture and make a sounder decision, but also in the circumstances themselves. So one of the things we do when I'm coaching, Michael, is to say to people, can you leave the email? Can you not respond for 15 minutes? Can you find the forbearance to just leave it? And then after 15 minutes, can you leave it for 30? Can you leave the text for an hour? And once people cross the 30-minute mark, all kinds of things become possible. And, and people can wait for 12 hours. And then, here's the really good thing, the really interesting kicker. If you wait 12 hours, in something like 30 or 40 percent of the cases, the, the, what looks like a budding crisis resolves itself or circumstances change mm-hmm. and, and what is making the leader so addled, so upset in the moment, has suddenly assumed gentler proportions and, and less sharp contours. So this is a this is purely about each person saying, I can do this. And this is easier than any diet or any exercise program one will ever initiate <laughs> But you have to do it to see its power. And then you, by the time you're, you do it three or four times, you're hooked. And you start yeah. using pace uh-huh. as, a, as a conscious tool.
1: Excellent. Yeah, that, it changes your whole approach.
2: It changes your whole But I have learned so much in my own life from, this, from writing this book and these people.
1: I bet. Nancy, the five leaders you discussed were highly confident people, but they did not descend into arrogance. Which leaders best exhibited this approach and how did they do so? And how can today's leaders do so? How do they find the balance?
2: They found the balance by the, first and foremost, by the embrace of the worthy mission. They And it's part of that pivot you were talking about earlier, Michael, mm-hmm. um, from I to we, from I to thou, from my agenda to, to a larger agenda for, for something better for others, and, and, and in some cases for the world itself. So I think that was the first thing, because, you know, here's what Lincoln said in 1862 at the end of a long letter, someone was urging him to retaliate against uh, some folks that were his enemies, and he said at the very end of the letter, what I deal with is too vast for malice. And that, I think, is, is what we're talking about. People that understood that in the, in the sweep of what they were trying to do, they, 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 they certainly found and cultivated greater confidence in their ability to do it, greater steadfastness, but that steadfastness and confidence in your ability to do something is actually very different than arrogance. And once they made that pivot, there wasn't really a great need to traffic in malice or traffic in self-promotion. There was a need to get the work done. Uh, And this this is true for all of them. So I think that, that one of the ways that people transcend arrogance is to discover what their purpose is. And that purpose is never primarily about building your own brand in a self proselytizing way. And I think the second thing that each of these people discover is that they're doing their work in concert with other people, and so you discover that your your work is, is absolutely dependent on others, and that tends to dial down the volume on arrogance and increase the volume on humility and service. And I think, like embracing a bigger purpose that's collective rather than primarily narcissistic, That also fuels one's sense of being thoroughly grounded and capable, eliminating the need for a lot of arrogance, which is often about a compensation for some kind of insecurity or anxiety.
1: Indeed, those are wonderful ideas. I love the quote from Lincoln. Thank you for sharing that. All five leaders you profile are what we might call lifelong learners. It takes humility to continue to develop, and all leaders in this book had it. How can we cultivate humility and development in today's leaders?
2: I I think by, by two things. First, by helping people understand how satisfying and engaging and compelling learning is in learning about a specific path or a set of objectives or the tools we need to accomplish objectives. So I think each of these leaders were learners and then they were teachers. So we don't think about talk about leaders always as being great teachers, but they are. They're like a great porter at, at a hotel. The, the door is always opening to something new, and, 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 and that is really important. Um, and people are looking for that all over the world. We're looking for people to help us learn more so we can do harder, better things than we can do on our own. I think mean, that's the first piece, leaders as teachers, um, leaders as porters opening doors to others. And then I think that, it's, that leaders themselves, help other people cultivate humility by by the nature of how they show up. I write about this in a few places in the book, that each each of these people from Carson to Bonhoeffer to Douglas, they didn't show up in a swaggering or swashbuckling or self-aggrandizing way. And their very act of modesty or dignity helped other people find motivation to show up in a similar way. So humility... Right? like collective anxiety, is contagious. Mm-hmm. The trick is to turn that contagion towards something very beneficial for society rather than something that's destructive.
1: I have only one more prepared question, and it comes from a quote from former First Lady Michelle Obama, who once remarked, the presidency does not change who you are, it reveals who you are. To what extent does a crisis reflect the true essence of a leader and does it take a crisis to bring out the best in our leaders?
2: So let me answer the first, the second question first. I don't think um, one has to endure or navigate through X number of crises to be a great leader. Uh, there's no question that m- most of history's most courageous and worthy leaders had endured or had learned what they had learned from crisis. But you don't need to, you know, Go to crisis, go to a crisis mall to be a great leader. Um, I think what's so important about about a crisis is that, that you know Rahm Emanuel said, paraphrasing someone I'm not sure of, never let a good never let a crisis go to waste or in the midst of crisis lies great opportunity. but no one's talking about that in terms of human development. and I think that what's so interesting about the volatility that these people found themselves in, is how they used it again, mostly very 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 intentionally to try and get stronger and better and to work from their higher self, if you will. And that is where I think the, the 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 stakes of power are so important. The stakes of power right bring out either the best or the worst in someone as a leader. That I think Michelle Obama's point or contention is dead on. But it it works both ways, mm-hmm. right? Power can make someone more callous or more cavalier or more self-aggrandizing um, or it can sober them and you know help them develop greater moral seriousness, help them develop greater dignity and, and compassion and so a crisis it was crisis a crisis is the, 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 the stakes of, of whatever authority a leader has right in a, in a certain sense turned turned up right on steroids more intense right more volatile. And so it's in those moments, I think, where we can see more easily than in a calmer time the potential growth for good or bad of a leader. And so I think that's really what we're talking about, crisis as a very, very interesting petri dish or greenhouse for what, for what the presidency or any kind of power makes a person, that for better or for worse.
1: Thank you, Nancy. You've given tremendous insights to leaders in the judiciary. We really appreciate your involvement, and we thank you very much.
2: It's my privilege. Thank you, Michael.
0: Thanks, Michael, and thank you to our listening audience as well. To hear more episodes of In Session, visit the Executive Education page on fjc.dcn and click or tap Podcast. You can also search for and subscribe to In Session on your mobile device. Produced by Jennifer Richter and directed by Craig Bowden. I'm Lori Murphy. Thanks for listening. Until next time.